Hi, this is Kerr Lockhart, co-host and co-producer of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. Well, <laughs> it's been a minute. Ten months, to be exact, since Ben and I last posted an episode. The year has been a roller coaster in the sense that there was a long, slow ascent, followed by a rapid, twisting, often exciting turn of events, which, in short, have made it very difficult for us to coordinate schedules. Going forward, we'd like to bring podcasts to you more regularly, but if the past 18 months has taught us anything, it's not to make predictions. In this episode, I'm sharing the first part of a freewheeling conversation Ben and I had back in the dim, distant days of March 2021, when in-person events were just slowly starting to resume. Ben reflects on the lessons of virtual performing over the previous 12 months. I plan to bring you the rest of our chat in a future episode soon, but meanwhile, please enjoy this and accept our humble apologies for the long delay. that notes out all right greetings across whatever you listen to podcasts on this is the silent film music podcast episode 40 i'm ben modell i'm a silent film accompanist and historian this is the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for perform and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm Ben Modell. I'm here in my apartment in New York, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host and co-producer on the podcast, Kerr Lockhart. Hi, everybody. Hi. Good to connect with you on audio here. This is, like I said, is episode 40. It's been a while, but I had my class, I had the silent comedy watch party, and I had two shows uh, two live streams that Steve and I did for the Slapstick Festival in Bristol, UK. Yeah, so you got to go to England. To England uh, virtually, <laughs> yeah, without leaving my seat. You've been uh, to a lot of festivals this year. Yeah, uh, virtually, either festivals or, or venues. Uh, and some of them are, are repeats and some of them are places I hadn't played before, like the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston and the Amherst Cinema. And we've just set something up for the folks in Boise. So yeah, I'm, I'm trying to trying to get around uh, best I can uh, without leaving my apartment. <laughs> and it's interesting, as you were introducing the show, and it's your standard introduction, we talk about live silent film accompaniment, and that word has meant something very different these yeah. last 12 months. And that's sort of our yeah. topic today is what does yeah. it mean to be playing live in these digital distant circumstances? Yeah, it, it's something unto itself on a, on a number of levels and for me because I dove right in to see if I could do it which I found out I could it's been interesting that I prefer doing it this way because I figured out how to do live streaming it's not a big not as big a deal and pre-recording is a lot more work pretty much any place I've contacted is about let's do this as a live event not pre-recorded not leaving it up for a week and then it's about you know showing up for for the for the show, but it's it's in, you know trying to preserve the very spontaneity of liveness and of this ephemeral moment that comes and it goes. And yeah. with concerts or theater or sure. live performing generally, yes, we do preserve some of these, but that's not the essence of the event. The event is a live event. Yeah, yeah. What you're preserving is the sound that's heard. It's like the way a, a digital keyboard. 
as as good as it may sound, and it may have what we call triple or quadruple strike samples, it's still a recording of a note being hit on a piano. And uh, it's not the same thing as an acoustic instrument where there's sound waves flowing through the air and the presence of the human being who's in the room with you. So and in a sense, also, I mean, yeah, all, all live so, silent film accompaniment is a hybrid artistic form. Really, it really is. You have a recorded and a live event running side by side. Yeah, exactly. And it's the synthesis of all of this happening in, in this sort of Venn diagram overlapping it's a connection between the audience and the screen, the audience and the musician, the musician and the audience, the musician and the screen, and then this, you know, all, where all of that overlaps really is what silent film is. And so what I've found, and I've heard this from people who've contacted me after shows or places that I've done, done these live stream presentations, is that even though we're not together, knowing out of the corner of your mind that, yes, there are 30 or 50 or 100 or 400 other people watching on their device or their computer at the same time as you are sitting alone. Just knowing that adds a, a certain amount of presence to it that you are part of a virtual audience. Have you had an occasion when you could sense them? Was there any way, any of this time in this last year, where there was any instrumentality that you could sense the room? No, there's absolutely no way, unless the people are in the room with you. <laughs> you know, there's no way to... There's, all I can do is imagine it. And you know, mm-hmm. with films that I know where I know what the audience reaction is like. I can have a kind of a sense of memory experience about it. And knowing, okay, here's where this laugh goes and here's where kind of a laugh happens here. So when, we, we, when we've shown one week on, on the silent comedy watch party, I know exactly how that plays <laughs> with an audience and I can almost hear it in my head. But the eerie thing is that the audience is not there and it's not till we get off the stream and we check Twitter and my email to see... What people have said, and we only hear from a fraction of the people. And if you're listening to this and you're a watcher of the Silent Comedy Watch Party, do write in. It's the closest thing to seeing an audience. So we'll get 280 or 300 screens, which means there's maybe four or 500 people. We'll only hear from maybe the same dozen or 20 people, which is which is great. And and actually, it's actually probably more people, you know, uh, watching live. Because uh, as soon as the, this is a, an anomaly with YouTube that you haven't figured out, is that as soon as the stream ends, the number of views jumps to like 480. <laughs> so we don't know why. So the closest thing we have to knowing about the audience is Mana, I know, is definitely watching the numbers. So that's the only indication we have. You know, the challenge with recording is it's you're kind of in a vacuum and it's not as much of a performance and because it isn't for other people, you're, I find I'm much more aware of the recording. So you're talking and about pre-recording a track. Pre-recording you're, anything, You're working yeah. for a your company or another company and you're yeah. going to have a set track that'll be yeah. on Yeah, you know, people are record. going to be listening to this and I'm just much more hyper-aware and it's very difficult sometimes. And I just get to a certain point with recordings where I like if I just have to put the pencil down, hand the test paper forward, and walk away from it. Otherwise, I'd still <laughs> be fixing the tracks I recorded for the Edison box set 15 years ago. Um, and it's you know if I I do another take where I get this part better, then the other part will fall apart. So I just do the best I can. There's this self-imposed pressure in a pre-records kind of situation. And with live streaming, at least for me, what I'm able to experience is a lot closer to an actual show in terms of not having that 
pressure of it being recorded, even though it is, we leave every episode up. There are people mm-hmm. that get emails. I just found your show, and I'm up to episode 33. This is great, <laughs> you know. But for me, because in the moment, it's a show that's happening right then. That recording pressure isn't on in the same way at all. It is what it is. You're not going to second guess it. Right. I'm not going to go back and fix it. So there's something to that spontaneity. I, I would never record my own piano because it has to be in tune out of necessity <laughs> for the watch party. It's like, well, I'm not setting up the keyboard. And for me, using an acoustic piano that has notes that stick and little clicky anomalies here and there, it, it does remind you as a viewer that it's a real instrument. In the intro to the show, I'll hold up my piano tuning lever and I'll, and I'll shake it like yeah. it's a hammer. It's like, I'm doing my best, folks. Well, and here's but, the other thing you do. I was thinking about that mana actually pans from you to the screen yes. uh, in a continuous shot. I was reading today about people who are hiring virtual assistants all over the world. And I thought, you know, Ben could go like the people who write the uh, the Tom Swift or the Nancy Drew books. And, <laughs> and you could hire a dozen Ben Models <laughs> somewhere in Indonesia um, or accompanying films, and you could have some have a day off occasionally. Um, yeah. Well, I'm, try- I'm actually that- trying to figure out how to, how to do that, where uh, I want to, I'm doing the hosting, but somebody else plays. <laughs> and we're trying to work out the latency issue. And I, I have to talk to the folks who created and update the Mimo Life software that I use. I think it's possible, but I, I have to talk with them. Folks, we, we all know Ben is a wonderful player. We all enjoy his playing. When yeah. you first started decades ago and you just gritted your teeth and said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it in front of other people. I mean, I'm sure yeah. there was that time you had to get over that hump. Okay, yeah. I've been sort of noodling around at home, but now other people are going to hear this. Yeah. And the first time you hit a clam and you go, uh-huh. I have to go on. Yeah. You know, t- talk about that experience. I don't I don't know how much of that I really remember. Mm-hmm. And I'm still hitting clams, by the way. That's my signature. <laughs> uh, uh, listen, I, Thelonious favorite... Monk made his, built his style yeah. on his clams. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I one of my favorite quotes about it is from Jonathan Edwards, from Jonathan and Darlene Edwards. Do you know them? <laughs> oh, yes. Folks, yeah, this is a... actually Paul Weston and Joe Stafford. Yeah, and they but, uh, appeared uh, incognito on records as very bad suburban amateur musicians. Oh. You must take the A train to go to Sugar Hill way up in Harlem. If you miss Joe Stafford. Uncannily sings exactly a quarter tone flat at all times, and Paul Weston, who is a great musician, great arranger, and he can add a beat and take a beat out of a measure just randomly. Yeah. <laughs> right. And on one of the liner notes where they're quoting him, he says, "People who can get all the right notes all the time are a dime a dozen." <laughs> not really sure how I got through all of that and it's just sometimes as it's been with the watch party where it is what it is and, and I think that I just 
gradually learned to ignore that. It, it took me years to get over any kind of stage fright or nervousness. And, but at one point, I, I was able to just sort of push past it. And then between that and my years of on and, on and off doing uh, comedy improv, where you, you don't have time you mm-hmm. know, to feel nervous about anything. You're tagging in in a scene, you're diving into it, and you can't think, oh, I, I hope I don't make a mistake. I mean, you, don't, you can't. I, I'm not really sure how, how that happened, except from just gradual erosion. Before we started recording yeah. today, we were just testing yeah. our mics. Uh, we've yeah. got a mic on the piano. You just started playing, and I said, Ben, is that something? Yeah. And, and you're like, that's just a thing that happens when you yeah. put your hand on the key. I'm less aware of now, and this is something I learned to trust my own instincts from doing you know, a lot of improv. Is just that I just look down and, and put my, I mean, I put my hands on the keys, and something will come out, and it'll just develop from there. So that's what we were, I can't even remember what, what it was, but, you know, even if I just do it now. that's i'm just making that up i just I, saw I just, a scene in my head yeah <laughs> I, I really did i pictured that but that yeah. makes you different from 99 of the pianists i know when they sit down say they sit down to a new instrument mm-hmm. they have a set of things that they play they're not even thinking about okay this Rachmaninoff prelude and then i do this little piece of ragtime and yeah. like three or four things that you run through that you it's like this is how i get around this board but you seem to have it's like well i'm just going to write it's with my hands. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, composition and performance. I think a lot of the other improvisers, pianist improvisers, work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have set things. Uh, I mean, they probably have things set the way I do. Like, whatever I just played, and for me, it's like, oh, this again, you know. My <laughs> hands are keep doing the same thing. and But it's a way, like, I can turn on something on TCM or a DVD, and within, you know, a second, I, oh, that's Philip. Or that's oh, Donald. I did, I did that. I can with tell. You the other oh, that's day. yeah. It's it's and I've had things where, but because I know at least for me, I I'm constantly trying to evolve or improve the playing because I have to listen to it at every show. There was something that I scored for the Max Senate project back in 2012 that air re-aired on TCM uh, maybe a year ago. I'm like, did they record somebody else's track <laughs> and put it on? And I waited for the end, and there it is. Music by Ben Modell, and I actually found the file and checked. And I was like, "No, that was actually me." I I completely disagreed with what I did for the film, <laughs> but at that time, that's what I was doing for it. So we're, but, but nonetheless, so you have a consistent sound, as I say, because my wife and I were working through American Slapstick too, and I and I wasn't looking at the book, and I said, "That has to be Ben." Yeah, and, and it it was you at the end. Yeah, yeah, which is why I, I wish they would, uh, and they, sometimes they remember to do it on TCM, they'll mention who's playing, because often when they'll license something that uh, uh, for that was produced for a home video, and then they'll license it for air, the the music credit's at the end. Yeah. You know, when, when I license something to them, when I prepare the master file to send into Turner, I move the music credit You'll to the front. Burn it on the front, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is the thing. So many times people say, why don't they do this or why don't they do that? Well, they you know, they license something. A hard drive is sent. I am a, my own person. I can take the title and move it.
Yeah, so we've all got our own languages, but I think this is goes back to the, the jazz music analogy I, I often use with film accompaniment is that I'm not making it up and I'm not winging it. I've developed this musical language. So you can, in the same way, put on a needle drop, uh, a jazz record, uh, and within half a bar, oh, that's Dexter Gordon. Yeah, oh, that's, people tr- of a, that's Train, people Bird, of a you know it. You know, bird, you know, in two notes, you know. I want to go back. I want to circle back. You said, uh, used an interesting term when you talked about listening to an older recording. You said not, I didn't like what I did. or I I disagreed. You disagreed. Now, what did you mean by that? I want to unpack that. So when I was watching, I remember thinking, oh, I remember now this is what I was trying. And maybe it worked and maybe it doesn't work. You know, one of the things with Keystone films is that there is a lot of information being shown to us. So for the audience to decode it, you don't want to be too busy. This is why one of my own rules about ragtime is to not use it, because ragtime sounds like what silent comedy looks like. So for me, there's too much musical information, there's too much visual information. That's just my own That's my you own. No, I just on it. had that experience. I put on something... And there were there were alternate tracks, and the sort of uh-huh. the default track was an orchestrated, and it was a Joplin piece that I know, and I yeah. had to switch it off right away because yeah. it was literally blocking my brain from watching the movie. Yeah, it's me- it's meant to be listened to. Period. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what I was trying to do at the time, especially because some part of the challenge in scoring those films is that, for my taste. They were being run a little too fast. Keystone films are the most easily decodable and when run at around 20 instead of 22 or 24 frames per second. They were never meant to be shown at 24. The people making them knew they wouldn't be shown at 24. So they adjusted their movements a certain way. So the idea is to try to find a way to balance musically so as to draw the viewer up into the world of the film so they can figure out what's going on. And I actually do something a little different now. That was like a, a step in the evolution of, of how I was scoring things. I don't know if it worked or not, but there is the possibility of overkill when you have this frenetic action and very, very busy music. I was trying something new to help people appreciate the comedy in a way that did get in the way. I mean, that's that's what I'm always working on. Even now, it's like I do, the, do one or two or three of these a week, and I, I don't have time to sit down in woodshed. Mm-hmm. And it's always, oh, this again. Oh, you're still in F. <laughs> Get out of F. Oh, now you're in G. You know? <laughs> I mean, I'm the only one aware of this. And as Mana keeps pointing out to me, every time I feel like, oh, this went really badly, I get more good feedback about the score. <laughs> to demonstrate this process, here's two minutes from Ben's score for the Roscoe Arbuckle 1914 film of Flirt's Mistake. If you detect some vaudeville orientalism, it's because Roscoe is being pursued by Edgar Kennedy, portraying a jealous Raja of unspecified origin.
That was a couple minutes from Ben's score for the Roscoe Arbuckle 1914 film, A Flirt's Mistake. The Silent Film Music Podcast is brought to you by Undercrank Productions, home of the neglected and unexpected in classic film. Douglas McLean played energetic, industrious, and charming young men in the mold of early Douglas Fairbanks. His 23 feature films in less than a decade attest to his great popularity. But McLean's films have been practically impossible to see until now. The Douglas McLean Collection offers viewers a chance to rediscover the work of a forgotten master of silent comedy. Undercrank Productions, in partnership with the Library of Congress, has revived two of McLean's most entertaining films, both in his characteristic Horatio Alger mode. What a Minute and Bellboy 13 in brand new digital restorations sourced from the best surviving elements. Inc. 19 calls What a Minute an endearing comedy full of hearty belly laughs and calls Bellboy 13 a jam-packed 45-minute rush, praising director William Cedar for doing a great job building the lunacy until the anarchy of the finale. A bonus short, A Trip Through the World's Greatest Motion Picture Studios, presents a fascinating glimpse into the Ince Studios at Culver City, where the American studio system was created. Silentology calls the film surely one of the greatest DVD extras we never knew we needed. The Douglas McLean Collection is a 4.9 star item on Amazon. Trav SD says the prints are pristine and beautiful to look at, and Silentology says Modell's organ scores, of course, fit the films to a T. That's the Douglas McLean Collection, available directly from undercrankproductions.com, as well as Amazon, Deep Discount, Walmart, TCM, and nearly everywhere else you can buy classic film. So going back to the beginning, now ordinarily now with the silent comedy watch party well established, you don't have either the inclination or the time to go back and look at one, but that pilot you looked at, what, yeah, what did so. you learn? That it worked, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the the pan from me to the wall and the wall to me that Mana does. And it was very important to me for the transition up into the movie for the audience. I think I was thinking of Picture Picture from Mr. Rogers uh, when I thought yeah. of that. Because there's a, there's a little moment when they dissolve from the television camera into the film chain where as a kid, I just couldn't figure out how do we get from his living room and now we're in this crayon factory all of a sudden how do we go through this this strange portal i'll do some more of this later but i'd like to show you some people making crayons let's come along i have a film of it here and it's never in a super exact match and but i wanted to replicate that there's the railroad tank car which carries the hot wax i never wanted to have myself in a little picture-in-picture image on the corner of the screen, which is the way a number of live stream silent films presentations are presenting the music. I wanted people to forget I was there, and in one sense, having the little picture-in-picture thing in the corner replicates what you would see if you were sitting in a theater. But when you compress it and flatten and put it in your lap, your eye keeps going to that image. Mm And so I figured just going up to the wall where we're projecting and then back down. And then as of May last year, I began using live streaming software called Mimo Live that allows me to dissolve from the projected image on our wall over the piano into a direct feed that goes out to the audience and then back, And which I was doing manually while I was playing. And then the guys who developed the software 
were intrigued by what I wanted to do, which is to find a way to automatically have it happen. And they developed an automation script with me. And so now I hit one button, the mics toggle, and the whole thing rolls. It just happens by me. But I'm still watching a projected image. I'm still watching something that's five feet wide right up next to me as I would on a piano uh, at a show as opposed to looking at a computer monitor. But the idea is I'm, what I'm doing is the same thing, and I've talked about this on other episodes of the podcast, of what I call playing people into a film, which is something I learned from Lee Irwin. I, all the theater organists do this. The, the applause starts, and you say, now let's enjoy blah, 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 whatever. Okay, here we go. So the people are clapping, and the lights are dimming. They're still dimming, and people are getting ready, and then the curtain opens, and, and then the film... Film begins. So, like that. Although sometimes, if there's two or three title cards explaining where the print came from, so you know, you have to. <laughs> Just something like this. Yeah, because those are those are hard to read. So you so you you know you don't want to you want don't want to have they a lot are of music very hard to read. <laughs> I don't understand. Every everybody does it the same way. The smaller type, and it's all the line spacing is too short. I don't know why that practice is done. It's very it is very difficult to read. And then because everything's digital now, you don't know how long it's going to be on screen. <laughs> you know, you just have to wait, and it's not jiggling. There's no scratches or anything. But then as it starts to fade, then you just transition out of it and change keys, modulate, go on into the next thing. And then you do the same thing on, on the way out. So the film will end. To give you an example of how Ben plays into a film, we're taking a an excerpt from episode 36 of the silent comedy Watch Party back in December. This is an intro to a Gail Henry comedy called Pants. And here's a little fanfare he plays. The camera is panning over to the picture. And now we're having the countdown. And it's pausing because here's the preservation title. And I think because it's Library of Congress, Ben has made it very dignified. Now we're actually the title of the film, Pants. And just kind of a neutral comedy tune. And now the action has started. And you can tell it's a chase. We're not sure if this chase is the actual beginning of this movie, but there it is. Is it preferable to link the titles to the first scene or to make a clean break on those? What do you? How do you like to do that? Kind of a, a, a mix. Because mm -hmm. uh, you don't want to take your hands off the keys and just completely stop. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the reasons I like the idea of playing people into the film and out of it also is that otherwise there's this dead silence that you're just sitting there holding your breath. Right. I think it's more of a, a modulation and segue than just stopping, if that's what you mean. Unless you yeah. mean, do I try to come up with a music that fits the title of the film? 
Um, well, I wasn't thinking directly of that, but you know, the, whether you're trying to enter the world of the film even during the title sequence. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. But there's two parts to that. One of them is that Lee Irwin always said, you know, always start full organ and then come way down. I, I still have a picture of him taking his two hands, spreading his fingers out, making them perpendicular to the floor, and then making this pushing down motion. The thing that's similar to that that I think of is look at the opening of any Warner Brothers cartoon. Mm -hmm. It opens really strong. And, and then you'll have this line played on a viola or a flute. But there's this little lingering something that trails you off into the beginning of the film. And we um, should remind folks that Carl Stalling, who wrote most of yes. those scores, is a theater organist. Oh, everybody. It was work. Mm -hmm. I mean, Shostakovich played for silent movies, you know. <laughs> it's really about the transition and making it not only a smooth transition, but the idea of that pan up to the projected image and then back replicates what's happening in your right brain as you watch a silent film. You know, you're seeing me or Machia or Donald or whoever it is. We start playing and then... You know, your, your brain goes up into the world of the film and you forget about it for, until the film's over. Now, when your brain is going from looking at pictures to looking at words, what's your responsibility as a accompanist? There's no need to stop or shift or interrupt anything because it's part of the scene. It's, it's, it's one of the ways that information is given to the viewer. So depending on the title, if it's an exposition title, we finish the sequence, we fade it out, and we cut to or fade in on a title it's three sentences long setting up a whole bunch of, of information and so that can be used as a place to restate a theme just so that you have something interesting to listen to or to shift into the mood of whatever's about to happen this is the thing that i've discovered that i've trained myself to do with i'm meaning to is that i read the titles much faster and actually what i'll do is i'll read the beginning of the title i'll jump to the end and then i'll go back to the middle and then back to the end so Every once in a like this would happen at Slapstickon, is that we'd run a, a Hal Roach comedy and there'd be a gag title and I will laugh about a second before the audience does. And then I'll, I will also play something that fits the rhythm of it. That's probably a little too over the top, but I might try to structure the music and, and this, the tempo speeding up and slowing down to match it. Occasionally, if there's something in verse that hits the screen, where somebody's reciting a poem or something like that, you have to honor it. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, the, then the audience is like, why, why aren't they matching it? There's a moment, and this is a piece I came up with to fit what's on screen, but in The Mark of Zorro, when Zorro first meets the young woman whose name I'm blanking on, he recites a poem to her. Let's see if I can find it. I have, don't have perfect pitch. My relatives have pitch, perfect pitch, so I have relative pitch. Uh, let's see. Let's see if I can find the name. Oh, here it is. Here it is. The verse, as you might do as if you're writing a song to already written lyrics, you want to write the melody so it's, it sounds like you would, the way you would speak it. If love were all ba 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 da 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 ba da 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 da, if love were all, so so what I came up with.
that's unmistakable that not only is it a you know got a regular meter, but the music is rhyming uh, where the words would rhyme. Right, and uh, yeah, so I try to do that, and there are, yeah, there are, there are places where there is a rhythm to it. So the beginning of Dog Shy, a girl was sad is the title, because her mother was and her father. We're trying to get her to marry a nobleman. And then it moves on into the sequence. But there's a rhythm. There's a three-word title, a shot of Josephine Crowell, a three-word title, William Orlemond, and, and on and on. So in moments like that where it is almost musical on its own, part of what I feel like I need to do is meet the expectations of the audience. The music's got to be like a, an old sweater comfortable, keeps you warm, and you forget about it once it's on. Well, Ben and I had a long and far-ranging conversation about accompanying silent film remotely, or at least for a remote audience, and I think it's best to leave it here and continue more for the next episode, when Ben reveals such amazing tricks of the trades as this. You can always play less. <laughs> been listening to the silent film music podcast with ben modell it's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for perform and reflect upon performances of live or now live streamed performances uh, of accompaniments to silent films this has been episode 40 don't forget to tell your friends about the show rate and review us on apple podcasts be sure to watch the silent comedy watch party every sunday and stay safe bye now title William Orlemond and and on and on so in moments like that where it is almost musical on its own part of what I feel like I need to do is meet the expectations of the audience the music's got to be like a, an old sweater comfortable keeps you warm and you forget about it once it's on well Ben and I had a long and far-ranging conversation about accompanying silent film remotely, or at least for a remote audience. And I think it's best to leave it here and continue more for the next episode, when Ben reveals such amazing tricks of the trades as this. You can always play less. You've been listening to the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live or now live-streamed performances uh, of accompaniments to silent films. This has been episode 40. Don't forget to tell your friends about the show. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to watch the Silent Comedy Watch Party every Sunday and stay safe. Bye now.